We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We have a guest I am super excited to speak with because he has interests that I think uh, will be informative for uh, many listeners, myself included. He is a Turkish-born postdoctoral researcher in cognitive science. He is now studying in Sweden. He's also a chess teacher and a prolific and popular chessable author who was the 2022 Community Author of the Year. He's got five complete original courses and a brand new one on the way that will be out in all likelihood by the time you guys hear this. He also has a great YouTube channel, Dr. John's Clinic. It's spelled C-A-N, but I just learned pronounced more like John. And I am excited to welcome to the show, Dr. John Kabadaya. Welcome, John. Thank you so much, Ben. It's a big pleasure to be finally a guest in my favorite podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. So I didn't even, I'm familiar with your work as we were discussing right before we were recording. Didn't even know you were a Patreon sub until I was sending out an email and saw the list of names and saw your name and said, hey, I know that name. So thank you for listening and supporting to the pod. It's always fun. I feel like you've been part of my life in the last three, four years. So finally, I'm here. I'm super excited. 
Yeah, I, I I get that every once in a while where someone says, it's so weird having you respond to me, you know, <laughs> when, when you interview someone who actually listens to the show, which I appreciate. But but Con, let's or John, sorry, let's dig into your story. I'll probably do that about 10 times. Yeah, um, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> OK, um, it's like a it's like a cognitive science trick for someone who's, you know, exactly. not from Turkey because you associate it. First of all, it's a word in the English language. And Absolutely. second of all, you, you it's a different name spelling. So as you well know. Um, Every time you have to override your impulses. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, John, um, you're in, two of our favorite interests here, chess and cognitive science. And I know that it, according to uh, your chessable profile, you started competitive chess around the age of 17, became a candidate master in about four years. And obviously now you're doing a postdoc in cognitive science. So my question is, which interest came first, brain science or chess? Oh, absolutely chess, chess man. I mean, I learned chess at the age of eight, actually. I was just having a recollection today, you know, the whole story of my chess life and history, right? I learned the rules when I was eight. My cousin taught me. She was living in Istanbul. I was living in Ankara. And they had this chess program called Battle Chess. Maybe you know it, yeah? The Battle Chess program. I sort of very much loved it, but we didn't have that back home. So every time I was going to Istanbul to visit them, I was playing Battle Chess. So that was already sort of the first ignition of the interest. But actually, uh, it took me some time to, to fully go into chess for me, right? So it was around maybe 14, 15. We were playing in some, you know, lesson breaks in a secondary school. Uh, and then maybe I was uh, around 16. I remember the day that my grandmother bought me a chess book, Kvablanka's Fundamentals of Chess, as, uh, as a birthday gift, right? And that sort of started this whole passion. And I started reading like, like, uh, like there's no tomorrow. I was reading everything that I could get. And sort of that's... Around the age of 17, I would say, 18, 19, I showed the biggest progress. My first ever either rating was actually 2,150. Wow. Right? This is actually kind of un un uncommon. And I was thinking, what's the reason for that, right? Obviously, I didn't play chess so much until I become good at it because I was really absorbing myself with, the, with this game and reading books, playing correspondence chess, playing some online chess on ICC, but mostly just absorption by full passion. And from the masters, you know, Zurich 1953, all the books that I could read. So it's pure passion for the game that actually led to the improvement, basically. And then I kept my level basic from there, more or less. And then later, I, after I finished my PhD, I became a candidate master. So that's sort of a sort of my story in chess improvement. That's amazing. I mean, it's nearly unprecedented to have your first rating be 21. I mean, obviously, if someone's coming from a local federation where they have like a lower rating and then they get fed into the FIDE pool, it's one thing. But if you're like kind of, you know, relatively fresh to chess to get that rating it's it's unheard of practically yeah i also think about it because it's also as a coach right it's sometimes difficult for me to relate right because i was not in those steps myself actually you know by, one by one but definitely lots of time was spent for chess i remember that was in my prep school that you know the workload wasn't great i was living with my family i had all the time for chess right so again lots of things has to combine right i was still young and uh maybe one or two years of full absorption of the game and uh full passion and just go in. That was probably the reason. Of course, I was playing in some local tournaments with my club in Ankara, but never like Ido registered, right? Not so many games. But still, my first ever Ido tournament was in Istanbul, Istanbul Open actually in 2006. And uh, yeah, I played against some stronger players and I was actually not expecting anything, right? Just go to your first Ido tournament and you have no expectations. So I did, I think I like six on six out of nine or something, if I'm not wrong. But I played against, you know, some stronger players. And I got this first ever iterating. I still have no idea whether I was actually, you know, in that level myself or whether it's just, uh, you know, one random shot. 
Right. And uh, somehow I kept that level for my entire chess life, I would say. Okay. Uh, yeah. Interesting results, but definitely it's lots of time was spent for studying the game. It's not like, you know, random hoax, like some intelligent tricks and something. It's totally full of work and daily practice, I would say. That's the that's the explanation. So you, so you had already some of the books you mentioned, like um, like uh, Capablanca's book and Zurich 1953. You had already read those by the time you played your first tournament? Oh, yeah, everything. Yeah, exactly. Hospitals, okay. uh, my great predecessors, wow. and uh, like Jonathan Robson's books. I mean, I, I'm still a book nerd. I, I, I was always a book nerd. Uh, but again, why do you read all these books? Because you're passionate about the game, right? About the dynamics of the game, which is basically quite interesting, right? Yeah. So it was forming connections, asking myself questions, you know, analyzing those master games, their descriptions of their mistakes and games. I think that's that's sort of led to this improvement. Not a structured way, but just full absorption of the game. Okay, yeah. And we'll yeah. return to the book nerddom later. But but John, yeah. I've interviewed over a hundred people. I've been meaning to count actually how many because I know I'm well into the three hundred and episodes, but obviously there have been some repeat guests. But in any event, you're the first uh Turkish born guest that I have had, if I'm not mistaken. Wow. So I'd wow. like to hear a little bit about the chess culture in Turkey. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a good question. Um I mean, obviously, uh, there are there are lots of strong people and clubs, especially mostly in Istanbul, I would say, and some some grandmasters, obviously, like in, also in the old times, like Swatlik. But it's actually recently there's a big progress. Like the young generation is actually stronger than before. So gradually, you also see more investment from the government from chess and schools. So this generation is already uh, more much more stronger um, than let's say in the 80s or 90s, as far as I could recall, right? Uh, and there are like local clubs. I had a university club back in Ankara. Uh, I was one of the best universities there. So lots of nice, nice fellows there come come together and just play. But in general, as far as I could, because it's been 10 years, more than 10 years, I actually left Turkey, right? So I'm not maybe 100% sure about the current status. But obviously, if you look at the results, yeah, if you even count the number of GMs, for example, that there's a big progress in the, in the recent um, years. There, there are there are nice, also there, there are very nice authors there, like Arpad Efe Ataman, who wrote the book. Um, yeah. Greatest chess miniatures, right? Yeah, great book. Right? He's also one of my friends. He's such a big uh, chess person and uh, very nice and nice fellow, actually. Uh, he had this uh, press, chess press. He's been running for many, many years. And he sort of spreads the passion in the Turkish community. Actually, I also translated one book for, for their chess press company. It was John, John Watson's Secrets of Modern Chess Strategy. That was in 2006 or seven, if I'm not wrong. Yeah? So I should translate that book from English to Turkish, that's also in my improvement years, basically. Yeah? Um, so there's also more uh, sort of books as well There's translated to Turkish language in, in recent years. Uh, that yes. must have been fun. That book's a classic. That's an absolute classic. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That maybe led my passion for strategy in some sense. That's that's why all my books on chess have learned strategy. Yeah? And we can become, come back to it, actually. But, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, and when did you... So when did you develop your interest in cognitive science? Yeah, I was actually a biologist from the beginning, although I always felt like I should maybe study philosophy or psychology. I was not sure in my bachelor years. And after I finished my uh, biology degree, I moved to Sweden to do a master's on behavioral ecology, right? So behavioral questions on why animals behave in a certain way, uh, evolutionary explanations, of course. And then after my master's, I was into cognitive zoology or comparative psychology. There are many names for that, right? So the idea is to compare intelligence, let's say cognition, of different species to understand how evolution of intelligent works or basically what are the skills that are emerging in biological history 
that could be explained by several factors, for example, evolutionary pressures or um, or brain size, for example. Yeah, these are fascinating questions, actually. That was, still captivates me. Uh, so I, then I did my PhD on the ravens. Here's a book, actually, on the on my PhD thesis. Ah, that's why the ravens are in the background. I yes, love, I love your background, the by the way. Yeah, I'm sure he was asking about this question. So it's a raven story here. I did my PhD on, on ravens and their planning and inhibition skills, right? And if you think about that, planning and inhibition also connects to sheds. Hence my cover for this for this PhD. So these skills, by the way, has been traditionally thought to be uniquely human, right? People are think, still thinking that you know animals are stuck in time. Only humans can plan for the future. Only humans have exotic memories, right? All these concepts are still with us, and that was sort of a challenge on those uh, theories. Yeah, I'm still very interesting field of study. Uh, you compare different species and compare their skills and try to explain how come, for example, ravens, despite having so much smaller brains compared to great apes, can be as smart as them in, in lots of different tasks, for example, yeah? Convergent evolution and all these questions, actually, that are still captivating. So that's sort of my story from biology, more like psychology compared to psychology, cognitive science and cognitive zoology, and now more into chess and expertise fields as well. I'm also very much interested in that. Maybe I can talk about it also in a later stage. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about that for sure. Uh, just to tie a bow, since most people are listening rather than watching. So the book um, that John held up is called uh, Planning and Inhibition in Corvids. And the background I was referring to, I've been, of course, deep diving on John's both chessable courses and uh, his YouTube channel, which is fantastic. And he has a very clean white background, but he also has a little statue of the rave, of a raven on the side and a very nice sort of artistic rendering of a raven framed in the background. So uh, that's why it was on my agenda to ask. And we have just um, just gotten to the bottom of that. So let me ask you, John. So obviously, as you say, your interests have evolved, even though uh, what, what you say about uh, the cognitive abilities of ravens does sound fascinating to me. I had no personal idea that they were so um, cognitively advanced. But so when did it cycle more towards uh, human cognition? Yeah, it's basically mostly after I finished my PhD during the COVID times, right? And uh, and has also got more into chess and chess teaching and trying to understand, right? Like about chess improvement per se. How how come how does chess improvement work? And what are the cognitive preconditions for that, right? So that sort of led to this. Obviously, I was still reading articles from Fernand Gobey, uh, his book, for example, on psychology of chess and so on. Chess, as you know, right, it's like a drosophila of cognitive science. Chess has been always a big part of cognitive science. Right, because we can measure so many things using chess. Right, for example, move quality, evo ratings. They don't lie. Right, that's actually beautiful. You can actually measure a certain behavior to understand whether sort of learning took place or not. Right, so that's why chess has been used in the last fifty years in a great way in cognitive science. And as I became more into chess coaching, and um, I tried to just understand, you know, how expertise looks like and what are the best, let's say, methods, for example, to get better in in chess or in other fields of expertise. So that sort of led naturally to those questions that I've explored uh, recently. Then I can also talk about this a little, little bit about this. Yeah, for sure. Too. So yeah. uh, so John is holding up the book, uh, The Psychology of Chess, which is by international master Fern Fernand Gobey, who is a 
uh, renowned cognitive scientist, in addition, obviously, to being an international master and someone that, in addition to you, Dr. Christopher Shabri said I should interview sometime. And to my shame, I haven't um, reached out at any point. But could you give yeah. us a few? I know you also mentioned that that book in one of your YouTube Q&As. Um, could you give us a few bullet points from uh, for what the psychology of chess, uh, like insights from it and what, what you personally learned from it? Yeah, I'm still talking to Pan Gobe, by the way. They are still thinking to maybe apply for a joint project. Right? Oh, wow. Project. So that's actually still in the cards. Maybe it's more about educational psychology, different teaching methods, for example. Because, right, that's it. That's just interesting. Every coach will tell you something about chess improvements, but we have no scientific consensus yet, right? There is no clear methodologically sound comparison that has been done yet, you know, comparing different teaching methods or training techniques in chess, right, for the best improvement. Now, that's a very ambitious project, obviously, yeah, because you need lots of controls, you know, lots of people and nice conditions for that. Maybe that's one reason. But that's one of our ideas, that maybe we can do something like that in the future, yeah, because that's fascinating also to, to explore more. That's also what Fernand Gobey thinks is the next step. Um, and But Fernand Gobey and this book particularly, right, um, it's mostly about chunking hypothesis and Chess expertise lies mostly in pattern recognition, right? Chess experts, through the years of and years of study of chess, they accumulated so many patterns and chunks. And that explains their expertise. Those concepts in their long-term memory allows an expert to instantly understand the gist of any position. And they don't need to search deeper than amateurs. Actually, most of the time, they actually search equally deep in certain lines, for example. But what separates them is that experts can see the best move instantly, right? Almost effortlessly in any given situation. So it's their move quality rather than the search depth that explain the expertise. And that's almost always the same thing in other domains of expertise. So that's also connecting to Simon's experiments. You probably heard about it, yeah? So this study that chess experts and amateurs, they look at a chess board and they must memorize it. If the board is meaningful, then experts have a much better memory right. than amateurs, right? But if it's a random position, random board, then they're equally good. Right, that's also sort of connects with this idea of experts. They they don't perceive individual pieces, right? But they actually perceive constellation of pieces like like chunks, for example, and that allows an expert, yeah, to remember positions effortlessly as well. So it's this chunking hypothesis, pattern recognition, um, and all these concepts around expertise, intuition, for example. They recently published an article, two thousand twenty three article about intuition and chess. Right, they gave different people chess positions to evaluate, and they only gave them five seconds to make their decision. And there's a clear skill difference and there's a clear correlation, right? Stronger you are, better intuition and better evaluation only in five seconds, right? All these things sort of point out to the direction that is really about this uh, long-term pattern recognition and instant access to the heart of the position that separates an expert. Yeah, and for listeners, uh, John did a YouTube video describing this this study that he just mentioned, where he actually replicates it. So you can actually watch the video and take the test of you being shown these positions for for five seconds. Right. And what I learned watching that is five seconds is not a lot of time, John. It's not a lot of time at all. <laughs> not at all. I know. I know. Some people actually take like ten seconds, and they tell me like perfect results, but then of course they tell me they actually took ten seconds instead of five. Makes a huge difference. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'll link to that video and definitely recommend um, that listeners check it out. So that's from 2023. Any other recent chess-related papers uh, catch your interest, John? Yeah, interesting, interesting question, Ben. 
there are still lots of things going on. Of course, obviously, like one experiment that uh, Gobey did actually recently that challenged the growth hypothesis because originally, as you see in this book, yeah, so the growth was the original. Yeah, person. classic thought and choice in chess. Yeah, thought and yeah. choice in chess. 1946. His subjects were grandma super GMs, Alexander Alekhin, Paul Keres, you know, all these big names. They've been, they, they were actually on the way to Buenos Aires to play in the Olympics. And uh, he was there, the scientist was there, chess players was, were there, and they were bored. So they said yes to take part in this experiment. So that's a funny story behind this. Yeah, that's how you connect this data. So in this book, right, they wrote, come, came up with all the findings that experts, they don't search deeper than candidate masters or even amateurs, but they should see the best move instantly. But recently, Gobey and his, his colleagues also challenged that. Actually, experts can also search deeper, but it depends on the position, right? That's the key. Experts can instantly understand whether the position is critical or not, and whether the search is necessary or not, right? And if the search is necessary, they can actually force themselves to search much deeper, calculate much deeper lines than weaker players. And that also connects yeah, to the expertise and how you understand whether the position is critical or not, right? The ultimate question, actually. That, uh, yeah, that was still with us, right? One of the most difficult questions to, to actually understand in chess, right? When you're playing a chess game. When do you stop and calculate and so on? Yeah. That was the final. Yeah, yeah, absolute classic study. And it's funny, John, we're we're recording at an, an interesting moment because we're recording here on September 20th. This pod will come out in two weeks. And I know that as you, you told me that you listen to the podcast, which I appreciate, but so I've got a deliberate practice uh, podcast with Dr. Anique De Bruin that unfortunately you haven't had the chance to hear yet, but coming out later this week, I also have a book recap where I, I discuss with Dr. Michael Franco, um, not only strategic ex chess exercises, which is a great book, but uh, think like a super GM, which I, I associate with uh, the DeGroot book because they were inspired by that. Uh, and here yeah, it is, of course. All the books you're talking about, I got prepared, right? I, okay. I got prepared to this lesson. Yeah. So I was, so was going to ask I you. I told you I'm a book that. nerd. I told you that. Yeah, I figured it was on your radar. <laughs> so Obviously. have you had a have you had a chance to, in addition to owning Think Like a Super GM, have you checked it out? I read it in the three days, I think. Yeah, when I first yeah. got it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely beautiful book, amazing. Uh, definitely great results and great findings, discoveries. Um, for example, in that book, right, the experts also make a big difference in terms of evaluations of the positions, right? Their final assessments are much better than the, the amateurs. And that actually led to one of my books on Chessable. There's an upcoming course that is coming next year. Uh, it's sort of about evaluation of the resulting position. And it's about material, quality, and time, right? Whether a pawn is worth defending or ditching, for example. I mean, you need to evaluate a resulting position in your head to make that assessment. And what Karpov said also is that, that what separates an expert is their ability of evaluating the resulting position, not only the current position, but after, right? Calculating a line, for example. And that's what also they found in that book. And that will be also in my course that I will actually connections. I actually refer back to this, uh, to this book in that course as well. But fascinating. I recommend this book to all, you know, adult improvers, all chess coaches. Beautiful. Also, from yeah. perspective. Yeah. Yeah. So, so well executed. And, and yeah, it's funny. I've been thinking increasingly. Uh, like everything that comes up in, in my book, this idea of the importance of evaluation. But I played in a rapid tournament over the weekend and I had this very instructive moment where basically I either had to go into a position where my opponent sacked, uh, he, he was sacking a piece, but basically I was either going to get three pawns for it or a um, a rook or it was going to be a, 
a rook and two pawns for two pieces. Um, but in the rook and two pawns for two pieces, which uh, objectively, if you're just going by points or whatever, would be a better choice, he got more activity. And I I went for the continuation where I got the extra material, um, but I was just on the back foot from then on, and I ended up um, losing. And it, it was just this sort of um, uh, teachable moment for me where, and, and an, I had another game where something similar happened where I kind of grabbed material. And it's almost not so much about the objective evaluation, but for me, it was an important lesson about like, just especially in a faster time control, assessing the playability of your position. There's so Absolutely. many just little things that come in, you know? Absolutely. What I also noticed in my project, also as a coach, right? Whenever there's a pawn grabbing option, it's very difficult to resist. Also for, you know, club players and so on. I did yeah. it around, you know, 1500 chess.com. I'm also doing a YouTube uh, sort of project about this series, about climbing the rating levels. And I'm actually exploring, you know, what kind of skills are emerging in, in which order as you grow stronger as a chess player. And what I've noticed so far is around 1500rapidchess.com, right? They are getting better in lots of different skills, but whenever there's an option of gaining material, oh, it becomes so difficult to resist. And it sort of acts like a bait that is yeah. difficult. Your judgment is affected, yeah? You, can, you cannot just resist it because it's a poem, right? But in fact, chess, has, as Gary Kasparov said, right? Three dimensions, material, quality, and time. And you must always assess, right? Those trade-offs. You know, what am I giving away by taking that pawn, for example, and so on. But that's difficult because it's difficult to measure, right? Quality or time in chess. But everyone can count material. That's right. So that's one thing, actually, why chess is a beautiful game. You know, all these dimensions and trade-offs and so on. Yeah, and it makes sense as you talk about it that 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 issue would come to play because I you know we've talked about sort of the the cognitive difficulty of uh, adult chess players when it comes to materialism generally where they might have trouble sacrificing you know there's sort of an increased risk aversion as you get older but we haven't talked I think as much as we are now about the converse of the Obvious. desire to grab material exactly I think that's equally important actually. Um, yeah, that's why we, this game keeps fascinating, fascinating because, it, I mean, you know, there's no certain algorithm, yeah? Like, apply this algorithm and you always have the right answer, right? It depends on your assessment and all right. the of dynamics, interactions, and so on. Beautiful. When we come back, John will share some chess calculation advice as well as more book and author recommendations. We'll be right back. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. 
Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And we are back. Well, John, I'm impressed that you've already got your next chessable uh, course out because I thought I'd done my homework. I had checked out all of your previous chess courses. And then as we were getting ready to record, you told me you have one coming out, um, Fundamentals of Chess Calculation, that will be out uh, by the time this pod drops. Um, so it sounds like you're basically due to your, you know, your unique position as a cognitive scientist and chess teacher, you're just brimming with ideas. Huh? Absolutely. And it's actually feed each other. The more work I do with my students, more ideas I get from my courses. So far, almost all my courses emerged, actually, that I noticed something in my students' games that I tried to help, right? So it's actually a process that feed each other. And Chessable offered this beautiful platform to test my students in an active platform, right? I was just about to give them some quizzes, but obviously Chessable is much better, right? Because there's space repetition, videos, and so on. So it actually is a, is a beautiful combined process. And my next course is coming, uh, hopefully this Friday. And that in that course, I also, for the first time, also tried to implement some cognitive science or educational psychology methods that I discovered to, to the best of my ability. Of course, I'm still improving. I'm not perfect yet. But I also want to apply some of the lessons uh, from educational psychology, for example, in that course. For example, I, I give different um, difficult levels, like from one to four. And I give, for example, crosslinks from the final chapters to the main chapters that they can go and study. If they notice their weaknesses, they can always go back and solve a similar position. And I offer also for casual players, I offer lots of scaffolds in terms of small prompts and hints. There are separate chapters for scaffold and hints. And I even gave a special positional mini plan chapter for those upcoming players, right? If they're not well versed with these positional patterns, it's also there. The idea is to simulate a real game situation as much as we can. And uh, fundamental chess calculation because it has basically four big elements, right? Candidate move generation, you must generate several candidate moves instead of going dive in in one and go like half an hour. Second of all, the opponent's resources must be checked. And third of all, it's about goal setting because some positions are positional and some are tactical in that course. Just like in a real game, right? You must set your goal properly. Is it the positional treatment? Is it the tactical treatment? So again, my goal was to simulate a real game environment as much as we can and also force them to calculate a line. The original title was three-ply calculation, actually. Right? Just three-ply. You will see one move for yourself, one move for the opponent, and a reaction to that move. Right? This is the shortest possible line that you can calculate in chess. But I noticed as a coach is that people, right, they just give me the first one that comes to their mind without any concrete calculation. Right? That's, that actually led me to create this course because it's like, you know, puzzle rush uh, kind of thing, right? Like a habit. Hey, this move looks great. Let's let's play and see what happens, kind of thing. Yeah. So this is actually forcing them to calculate the line, which means they also must check for the opponent's best re- response, right? And their reaction against that move, basically. So this is sort of a multi-purpose course. That's what I try to create for the best value for my students, also for the whole community, obviously. And let's see how they react to this. It sounds great. And I know you also mentioned in one of your videos, you're a Jan Marcos uh, under the surface fan and that, that uh, here comes the book. Man, <laughs> we didn't, no, we didn't plan for this, you know, like <laughs> I didn't get the book before, but every book, all the books you told me so far, I just got prepared uh, next to my desk. It's here. It's an amazing book, by the way. This under the surface, yeah. amazing author, amazing book. I just love it. 
I yeah. Love and it calls to mind the quote where he says that grandmasters don't just see deeper, they see wider. Um, yeah. And Sorry. it definitely resonates. By the way, if, you know, these books, some of them I read electronically, but like if I were to have to try to dig them, they're on those shelves somewhere. But my, my shelves, as, as people in the YouTube comments have attested, are a chaotic right. mess. I have no idea where anything is. <laughs> so it's a very stark contrast. <laughs> to incredible, how I, incredible. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 I just got, you know, six books for today's interview. I think you sort of mentioned all of them. So there's nothing left. Yeah, that's, that's wow. great. That's funny. And, and yeah, totally uh, unplanned. Well, yeah. bringing it back to your, your testable course. So yeah, the new course sounds fantastic. And of course, you have the Art of series, which is uh, four different courses, exchanging pieces, awakening pieces, burying pieces, and the Art of Multipurpose Moves. And for listeners slash viewers, there's a free preview of that. And then you have Chess Crimes and Punishment, which I also, I really like the sort of presentation of that one. Um, and I think it's very helpful for amateurs because it is, as we discussed, drawing on your work. So what did you notice in uh, typical chess crimes from uh, adult amateur players? Again, it emerged with my work with my students, right? I was not seeing certain mistakes. They are just so instructive and so strategic, actually. Not like calculation mistakes, but totally like a thought process errors, right? Like, for example, planless play or passive mindset right? Or letting down their pieces, for example. You know, they were just shutting down their own pieces with a pawn move, for example. Yeah, I mean, you cannot explain that by, you know, lack of tactical vision or some calculation. Error. It's totally like this whole process mistakes that, since they're like conceptual mistakes, right, they could be fixed with such courses, yeah? That's the reason why I create this course like this, purely for such mistakes and lots of explanations, lots of text, also video, of course, that we are changing our mental model by looking at mistakes. And that's what, like, in education psychology, right? There's a big thing that's called, you know, learning from mistakes. That's actually quite a powerful method of teaching a concept, right? Once you understand why a certain thing is a, is a big mistake, for example, then tremendous opportunity for us to, to learn and to change our mental models and approach to game. So again, I, that was the main goal with that course. It emerged over one year of my work with my students. I collected, and thank you so much for my students for accepting to use your material in my course. And uh, yeah, that was the reason I, I did that. And so far, again, it got like good reviews on Chessable, which is great. People are liking it. Yeah. So to give listeners a preview, like what are the most common mistake types you see from, from adults? Yeah. So basically, it depends on level, obviously. So we are talking about, let's say, 1300 to maybe 1800. Let's say, yeah, broadly, of course, there are differences. Yeah, which I, um, if I may interject, that my impression is that's sort of your target audience for your material. Yeah. Is, would you say that's correct? I think so, mostly. Yeah, let's say maybe even 1,200 to 1,800, something in that range so far, right? Um, yeah, as I mentioned, that, for example, also, like letting down the pieces, passive mindset, but lots of adults are, also, it's also about you know, psychology and personality, obviously, right? We are bringing our persona to chess game. Some people are naturally risk averse, for example. They just avoid taking any risks, you know, like whenever there's a sacrifice option, they refuse it and they get intimidated by the opponent's moves, right? So there's a chapter on that, specifically on that. Like, how do you tackle that mindset? Yeah, that's great. Well, you know, <laughs> you objective, yeah? And as Simon says, sometimes we just need to have this, you know, bullshit mindset, okay? The opponent makes a move and instead of, you know, going crazy, like fearful mindset, we just say, okay, I will try to find the drawback of that move and try to punish you for that, right? Um, and also time, right? Understanding of time, concept of time in chess. It takes a long time to, to, to be fully digested, actually. So there was also one separate chapter on this, right? Neglecting time or development, right? Like lots of pawn moves in the opening, for example, losing time in a sharp position, 
right? So that's also a separate category. That's also about, you know, general conceptual understanding that could be fixed by the right questions and explanations and so on. But these were the four biggest groups that I noticed in the in my range of adult improvers, so the typical mistakes, uh, strategic mistakes. Excellent. Yeah. And so listeners, you can check out previews on on Chessable. And of course, shout out to Chessable. Thanks, as always, for sponsoring for Perpetual Chess. And I did want to ask you, John, if you have any other favorite Chessable courses outside of your own uh, prolific and instructive output. Um, you mean, do I have another Chessable course already or I'm working on them? Are they like upcoming courses? No, like other authors, other... Ah, yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, obviously. I mean, like, as, as I mentioned, right? Like, Jan Marcos is is my favorite. Like, mm-hmm. I very much love his style of writing in this book, actually. Maybe slightly for higher-level players. It depends, right? I'm, I'm pretty sure even lower-rated players can gain lots of value in this under the surface. Um, because his style is full of analogies, right? He's, he's kind of very philosophic in nature. He forms analogies, for example. For example, he says... Oh, we should sometimes perceive our pieces as a piece of wood that is getting in the way of our pieces, right? I love that analogy, just a piece of wood that is getting in the way, right? Because if you perceive sometimes your pawns like that, then it's actually easy to sacrifice them, right? For peace activity and coordination. So that's a strength of such books that shows us different perspective and vision of how how to approach our beautiful game. I very much love that book and uh, I'm expecting him to write more. He wrote, of course, one more with Navara, uh, defensive skills, I believe. Yeah, that's also a good book, good one. Was it about? Was more about um, tournament plays or something? Yeah, they, they wrote one more book with David Navara and Jan Marcos. But uh, obviously, you know, quality chess books are great. Galfan's books are great, right? Yeah. Traditional, traditional primers are great. Um, since I'm a strategic player in mind, like I very much love those books with lots of text and annotations and you know words and descriptions. The better think like a super master super grandmaster is, is great as mentioned uh what else dan heisman's book of course they're they're great yeah improving chess thinker or even um the amateur's mind for example by uh by someone yeah are great jonathan Robson's books are great again because of his philosophical nature and you know lots of analogies i mean maybe that's just a personal preference but i very much enjoy reading those books rather than you know just the engine lines after engine lines of things yeah yeah, yeah we, we've got similar taste. I've been realizing that if you could distill my interest to just like a few words, it would be like chess and words, <laughs> like the, 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 common, the combination of those things, which is Definitely. why I'm a podcaster and reader in addition to being a chess player. Um, yeah. So, John, we've got a couple uh, Patreon sub listener questions. Um, so this one is from David Ham, and I think it will be uh, insightful for a lot of listeners because it's a topic that comes up a lot. So thanks for supporting the pod, David. And he asks you, so I'm going to read the question. It's a bit long. He says, I'm an adult improver who's been playing for about a year. People often told me not to study openings and just to focus on tactics. I did that for a while, but was never able to craft a plan when I was playing. Recently, I've started studying openings against the advice of many and have seen great improvement in my game. Obviously, there is theory that is above my head. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> but understanding the main ideas of the openings that I have chosen, the English for white, the Caro for black, and K- King's Indian for everything else, has made playing more fun and allowed me to play a more, a bit more strategically. All that to frame up my question, do you think the general advice to beginners not to study openings other than to develop your pieces, control the center, and protect your king is still good advice if it ever was? 
eternal question, right? The, yeah. the so openings, you know, just, yeah. you know. Um, now, well, I don't have any opening courses on chessable, and it's not really for intention. I thought that there's already saturation in the market also, because I also love strategy and words. I think it lends better to, to such descriptions, although, right, openings are also could be great in terms of strategic understanding, philosophies behind the openings, right, typical plans, typical breaks, lots of patterns we can actually employ and learn from our own openings. My approach to openings is, yes, it's important because every single game is an opening, right? But not every game is an end game, for example. So you'll definitely see those patterns if you put some work and energy in analyzing some openings because you will see them more often in your games. And this could, first of all, make chess more fun and interesting. And also you can actually apply something that you learned to the context, yeah? There's actually a very high chance of occurrence, actually, which is great, yeah? Because whenever you learn something, you want that learned material to occur in your games as much as possible, yeah, for you to have this op opportunity to apply what you learned. So definitely opening study, I think, should be done. Openings are important. But of course, it's a combination, right? Because some people just go and memorize lines, for example. That's what they understand from learning openings. But the problem is that then they're relying on raw memorization instead of deeper understanding, right? Or conceptual understanding. And then the learning becomes shallow if it's only depending on this pure, you know, broad memory or pure space repetition, then the problem is that, yes, maybe short in the short term, you will get those moves that you will memorize. But the moment the opponent deviates, right, you're sort of hopeless and you sort of have to rely on your general understanding and typical plans and breaks, for example. The opening. So it depends on how you study the openings, right? Even on Chessable, I'm sure there are lots of great courses that also show, you know, typical plans and ideas in your opening, even all the way to the end game. Because if chess is a game of pattern recognition, then we should ideally study it from making connections, right? From the opening to the middle game and even to the end game from that pawn structure, for example, right? So there's a deep connection. It depends on how we study it. And uh, to me, the, the best thing is to combine road memorization because you also rely on that, of course. I should mention that, right? I'm not saying that you should just forget about memorization. No, that's important, right? We have to rely on the hundreds of years of evolution of chess openings, right? So you don't need to remap the middle all the time. And obviously, some openings rely more on that memorization, like Nidorf, like Grunfeld, right? Like, you cannot be at the deal <laughs> in your games. You must memorize some moves as well. So it's always a combination. And definitely, I think, if it ignites your passion, if it gives you a good feeling for, for your chess, by all means, do it. But try to do it by reading books and lots of texts and try to go deeper and understand the philosophy of the opening, right? Like, what are the typical home breaks, for example, you're playing for? What are the model games that you can actually apply? And look, right? Look at lots of different games, for example, model games in your openings. This will give you better ideas of what to do when your opponent deviates from your theory, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. So that's my, my general approach to, to, to chess openings. I'm sure that uh, it's important. I'm not saying that, you know, just ignore it altogether. It depends on how you study it in general. Yeah, I, I I agree. And this is a topic, of course, that's uh, tackled in my book as well, because it does come up so often. In fact, I remember Noah Zucker asking a similar question um, a, a few uh, interviews back, because um, he's sort of struggling with the same issues. And to, to David's last question about um, whether it has changed, I am from sort of interfacing with um, amateur 
players who are grappling with these issues, I do get the sense that maybe openings are becoming a bit more important. I think probably because of all the the preponderance of sort of uh, YouTube shortcut um, testing openings, gambits and stuff that that people can play. But the the advice I give in the book is, I mean, you've got to do macro level reviews of your own games. And if you have a coach who can give objective um, outside advice, all the better. But um, you really want to be trying to, uh, to the extent you can, isolate the variables that are contributing to your results, um, because there is a natural, as David alluded to, feeling of comfort when you know what you're doing in the opening. It's not pleasant to just feel like I have no clue what's going on here, but it's not necessarily what's actually dictating what occurs in the game. So I'm not saying that David's right or wrong, but I'm saying like personal slash with a coach analysis of those things to me is what can really answer the question of whether you personally need to be spending X amount of time on openings. I totally agree. Yeah. But it's um that's you know that's what makes chess improvement fascinating and uh, that's what makes it um hard because it's you know people give this blanket advice but it might actually you could be an exception to whatever advice is given. After the break, we will hear John's thoughts on what the best age to start playing chess is. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And we are back. We've got one more listener question, uh, John. This one is from David Lazarus. And he asks, all things being equal, what is the best age to start playing chess? Now, he didn't clarify an objective, but let's suppose it's to maximize your chess ability. And I know you've got a four and a half year old son. So um, yeah. <laughs> maybe you've been thinking about this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh well, to the best of our ability from scientific evidence, the age, cutting off age seems to be 12, right? That's the best evidence we have so far. Again, studies can improve. We can have more like control studies. But at least that one study that did this big, big uh, comparison analysis uh, found that if you start chess before the age of 12, right, and play seriously, study seriously, then uh, you really increase your chances to reach IM or even GM titles compared to the players who start after the age of 12. We don't know why. And again, the study can improve. We need more data. But definitely it's about probably about, you know, flexibility of the brain and there are lots of different uh, conditions that are part of the story. Um, but so far, obviously, in general, earlier, the better, right? Uh, but that's the best evidence so far that I can give. Like if, if I have to give a certain number, I guess that's a question, right? Like, what is the cutoff age? <laughs> then I guess I have to say, okay, try to start before 12. Basically. Okay. And there's... Chance. And there's no such thing as starting too early, as far as we know? As far as we know, no. I don't come up with, like, no study that mentions that is a, is a potential problem. Um, Capablanca was four, if I'm not wrong, right, when he learned the game of chess. I'm not sure any younger player, I don't know of any, who started even earlier. I think that Russian kid that that's, like, on yeah. YouTube playing Karpov and stuff. Yeah, and he was crying when he lost against Karpov. Yeah. I think he was yeah. three, some some fraction, three plus, you know, three and a half or something when 
when when he started. Yeah, which at some point uh, it becomes slightly worrisome. But as as long as the kids are happy, you know, who who am I uh, to judge? But um, yeah. and as long as they're uh, enjoying the pursuit. And John, your one of your most popular YouTube videos is also related to age and chess. Um, uh, we should say, by the way, that John does has, has a Reddit Q&A that's pretty easy to find online where he took the most popular, like, what would you ask a cognitive scientist slash chess player about chess and turn them into videos? Um, and one of them is relating to the another age-old question, which is, uh, if you start chess as an adult, let's say 22, um, how good do you think one can become? Absolutely. So that that was the, the the most upvoted question on Reddit, and most people are interested in that. Obviously, right? after the Queen's Gambit, right? <laughs> and uh, yeah, so that question sort of tried to attempt to answer that question. So, what are the chances for that? And uh, obviously, obviously, lots of work is needed, right? And as I mentioned, I was also mentioning this age of twelve in that video to to the, to the best of our ability, right? That's sort of a one important predictor. But obviously, we don't know scientifically which method is the best. And that's maybe a positive thing, right? We need more scientific evidence on the best techniques of teaching, best techniques of chess uh, learning in general, because despite every coach will tell you something, we don't have a clear scientific evidence on the effectiveness of different methods. And as you as you, as you grow to be, of, of course, using some technologies, yeah, right, like some AIs and so on, can also you know accelerate this process. Lots of um, chess softwares are there. All the material is out there. So now we have more resources to study chess compared to, let's say, 30 years ago. Um, so I was mentioning all these positive processes as well that could explain that maybe there are some chances. I guess that study that I mentioned to you before, if you start after the age of 12, the chances were 4% of something, of reaching uh, IM or something, or maybe much lower, yeah? I mean, the chances were like drastically off to reach, let's say, 2,300 and, and above. But if the goal was around 2,000, it wasn't so difficult. Actually. That was sort of one of the, the basic results of that study. But again, we don't know much about because that study actually only asked people of how they were using their time, right? And only thing they, they gathered that data that some people told them, okay, I study, let's say, 20, I put 25 hours a week into chess as a solitary practice. But we had no idea what they were doing in that 25 hours, right? right. And even we could see a great variation. For example, some people were reaching a candidate muscle level, let's say, 20 times uh, quicker. Than, than some other guys. Yeah, that's a tremendous variation in that study, actually, which actually sort of goes against, right, this deliberate practice approach because they say, hey, it doesn't matter if you put 10,000 hours to your study, then you can become an expert, right? But in that study, for example, there's a huge variation. I mean, some people are just much quicker in reaching that, uh, let's say, kind of muscle level. And how come? The problem is that, again, right, we don't know exactly how they were studying, and there we need more data, right? That's the next step in our scientific endeavors here. And that's difficult, but could be doable, right? With the right technique, with the right methods and so on. You can compare, for example, different techniques. Well, <laughs> maybe even like, is blitz good for you? You know, some groups can maybe do some blitz for a certain period and maybe some will do only game analysis. And maybe even the way of teaching can, can differ, right? Some, some people can start from simple and gradually go to more complex uh, domains. Let's say you show them solution at the beginning and gradually put more information versus some other group, let's say they start from something sim something more complex, let's say in a discovery context, yeah? They do this, you know, guestable training, for example, unguided practice, because there are like different, let's say, opposing views in educational psychology, right? What is the best way of teaching anything? And one group sort of says, it's, it's about direct instruction, instruction. You should really give them the solution, give them the right technique and the methods of solution. You teach them first. 
and then gradually increase the difficulty. And while the other group, sort of constructivist approach, right, says that, you know, no, we should just already challenge them. We should give challenging tasks to our students and expect them to discover along the way, right? So these are fascinating questions also, like can we apply this to chess, for example? What is the best method uh, when it comes to chess improvement? You know, should you give them solutions to your students directly or what versus, you know, let's say, put more challenging questions and maybe guide them along the way. That's also called guided practice. And here, coaches can be useful because coach can actually guide and give support and scaffold to the students while also challenge, giving challenging tasks because, right, the improvement takes place in a, in a challenging context, right? You have to, you know, desirable difficulty. Right. So that's very important. We should really go beyond our comfort zones. And that's difficult, of course, for so many people. You also need so much time, as I mentioned, because about it's about pattern accumulation, right? Pattern accumulation takes time. And God knows how many patterns you need to know in chess to become an expert, right? So it's many, many, many number of patterns and chunks that must be known, that must be studied. Obviously, it will take time. And if you're an adult who starts at the age of 35, right, if you have family obligations, if you don't spend enough time on chess, right, then it becomes difficult, obviously, to reach a master level. So again, again, it just depends on the context, but I'm hopeful that uh, we might find much more effective techniques of improvement later stage to maybe speed up this process as much as we can. Yeah, so so fascinating. Yeah, but that does provide some useful context. And of course, for... Listeners who want or didn't catch my interview with uh, Todd Bryan about a month ago, he shared some data that, you know, is not as I mean, shout out to Todd. He's working really hard, but he's kind of trying to um, backdoor his way into to getting what data he can. So it's not like scientifically rigorous, but anecdotally, he did uncover basically the same thing. He found adults. He found many adults who made it to 2000. I mean, obviously, these are still the outliers because these are the ones he's searching for. Um, but to start past the age of 25, say, and make it to the FMIM level is an extremely rare occurrence. I listened to that podcast. So inspiring, by the way. Kudos to Todd for this uh, beautiful study and uh, data gathering. I mean, yeah. even anecdotes are important, right, for us, because it's doable. It shows us, even if there's one single person that does it, it's, it means it's doable for a human to achieve. And yeah. it's all like great, great data for us, yeah. Yeah, well said. And that brings us to what, what could be our final topic, John, your, your own chess. So it says somewhere on your chessable page, at one point you were you know, chasing FM, then uh, COVID came. Um, any thoughts of competing in the near future? Yeah, it's, it's difficult. Um, especially with the child, lots of obligations, courses. Yeah, it's teaching, so hard. You know, yeah. Students, life, and it's it's tough. I felt like I had to make a decision in the COVID, during the COVID times, and I chose... You know, chess coaching basically, and uh, I go full in to chessable and teaching and try to improve as a chess coach, as a scientist, and so on. So you have to make decisions in life, and I feel like if I if I go back into competitive chess, right, it will take lots of resources and it will demand so many things. And uh, how much of it I can give? Because I'm also a competitive person, I want to give my best, right, before I go to the tournaments, and that's well, that's difficult, right? And you sometimes avoid it because you feel like you will lose rating and so yeah. like all these psychological things kick in, right? No one is perfect. Yeah. Thoughts, you know, like catastrophic thoughts of what happens if I just lose all my games, you know? So I'm not sure. Maybe at some point, once things settle, once I get this transition period maybe ready, once I sort of have more clearance uh, in, in, in my life in general, I, I would love to go back at some point and, uh, you know, compete again and at least pursue FM title. Why not? Because I can also be a good role model for my students, right? I mean, I have to sort of, that's also one thing that I think it should be pursued also as a, as a coach. 
coaches should also experience that, you know, turn on context as much as they can to understand their students more, basically, the whole psychology behind it. So, yeah. yeah. That's funny. It makes me think of my conversation with Dr. Joel Sneed, who was also an, an accomplished improver who made it to 2000 plus uh, starting after the age of 30. But he had the same hang ups. I mean, so it's like no, no, no knowledge of, you know, knowledge of the domain does not make the uh, the reentry any easier um, when you've got so many, um, you know, higher priority, uh, possibly things competing for your time. Absolutely. Knowledge and skill gap, right? So yeah. because you have knowledge doesn't mean that you can apply it. Yeah. You need to be so sharp, tactically sharp, you know, calculation-wise sharp, stamina. I mean, chess, if you think about that, right, it's not the most complex games out there, even sports, right? Because it demands constant attention and concentration. You can play the best game in your life and you can make one slip, single slip, and lose that game, right? It's not like, like that in basketball, right? I mean, you're like 40, 40 points up. Yeah. Who cares? You know, <laughs> just, right. Just, but in chess, you know, like it's one of the few sports actually in the world, right? That is so cruel that you can't lose any position in chess, which means like stamina after four hours of chess, chess, chess doing. I mean, just play after four hours. Yeah. You're so tired and you make a single mistake and the game is over. So it, there are all, all these psychological elements, other elements that actually makes a good chess player. And it can be tough, yeah, for especially adults after a certain age to, to keep that level. As I saw it as a coach, so many students, right? They play beautiful games, amazing games, but there is no consistency, right? Their floor is low. They, they haven't raised their floor. They make some really random blunders that masters never do, right? That's some, even masters, of course, they blunder, but there are certain elementary mistakes that are causing them to maybe not reach the next level, right? And that's why chess and is so difficult. So yeah, difficult. yeah, for sure. Um, so how does it, so it sounds like you're doing a lot of coaching, John, um, which I'm sure your students appreciate and with, uh, postdoc research on top of that and a family, as you say, obviously it's a difficult balancing act. I'm curious, like if you, if you look forward five, 10 years in your career, like how do you, in what's your perfect vision of sort of how that would be balanced in the future in terms of the chess training, the chess coaching you do, as well as, uh, your research? Yeah, amazing question, Ben. Now it's like existential uh, yeah. <laughs> summary of my life and my goals and so on. Yeah, I mean, really, uh, first of all, chess will be part of my life. Yeah, that's clear. If there's mm -hmm. one thing that's clear from this, chess will be part of my life, no matter what it is. I mean, I, I can maybe not, don't get any funding. Then I can also, like, I can go back to it, maybe do more coaching. I can write more books, but it will be definitely part of my life. I love coaching. I really love, you know, discussions with my students, seeing their progress. I mean, they became my friends and uh, I mean, just, just an amazing process. And again, it feeds each other, you know, coaching helps my books, helps my courses, helps my YouTube. And so, I mean, this, everything's just a beautiful cycle. So I don't want this cycle to end. That's why this will be part of my life. And I can get, of course, some, you know, scientific funding in the future, let's say, and maybe some other projects, but I will also love not to, you know, disconnect from the chess world, basically. So I will try to make it find a balance, basically, that I also don't want to give it up altogether, while also try to investigate those points, pursue those subjects that I find fascinating. You know, for example, like expertise, improvement, and then how can we use chess, this beautiful game, to answer all these questions in psychology and cognitive science. Um, and hopefully, after I have some clearance, I want to go, also go back and play play more chess, as always. I know, I feel like a chess nerd and chess addict, but this game is amazing, right? It's just a yeah. chess club, basically. Once you have it, right, it's very difficult to <laughs> to get rid of it. But I don't regret. I mean, this game is so beautiful and fascinating that I can spend uh, basically my whole life, yeah, and still be kept uh, motivated, I think, and inspired from this game. Well said. And and obviously, as a fellow 
chess lifers, we would love to see that chess related and improve, you know, self improvement related research get funded. I mean, that, I'm sure there's so many insights that that you could uncover with your expertise. Um, so, John, last question: In case anyone listening is wondering, are you taking new students? If anyone is interested. Yeah. Um, so this this next four months will be chaotic and lots of <laughs> additional tasks. Like you know, joining forces with Penang Bay, scientific, uh, let's say, uh, publications slash uh, applications for projects. Right. Also, currently I'm still doing work with you know Ravens and so on. So this this next four or five months will be a little bit chaotic, but after it clears, I will love to go back and get more students. Sometimes, of course, I mostly do it in weekends, by the way. Um, sometimes I also give group lessons, for example. That's also great. Because in a group, I think the maximum limit is four people. That's like a nice group dynamics. Because otherwise, it sort of becomes a lecture. Right. But I sort of uh, try to create, let's say, three to four people groups. Beautiful people come together. We discuss and we reflect and we analyze and we do lots of shit stuff together. So it's a beautiful process. I'm still improving on that. I'm still trying to get better in dynamics. But... Uh, there might be more options also in this semester, maybe for like more group lessons. But I try to yeah maximize also my time and so on while also giving value to my students. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, it sounds like you're you're quite a busy guy. So for anyone, obviously, check out the Chessable courses, the newest one, the fundamentals of chess calculation, as when the old ones I checked out and are fascinating as well. Um, but what is the best way for people to reach you, John? Yeah, so they can reach me. So um, that you could tell them you can't coach them for the next four months personally, <laughs> rather than exactly. just on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. So all my details are on, on my YouTube channel. If they go to Dr. John's clinic, so they, they just click on a video and they will see all the links like on chess.com and on Leeches or other websites. Also, yeah, they can connect me on, on Chessable. I'm pretty sure they can just write to my personal profile there. And uh, there are plenty of ways for them to, to contact, I'm sure. Okay, excellent. Yeah, and while you're at it, make sure you sub to to Dr. John's uh, YouTube channel because it's fantastic content and uh, deserves uh, more subs because, I mean, you're a busy guy. We don't want you to stop making these videos. So, um, so, uh, so John, it's been great to finally chat. Would love to do it again in the future sometime. Uh, any closing thoughts? Yeah, and this was amazing. I mean, I'm still an amazing feeling for me, yeah, to to be part of this show, which I was listening on a weekly basis in the last three to four years. I would love to come again and talk about chess stuff, psychology, cognitive science. I'm here, you know, chess is a beautiful game. There's worth more discussions. So please feel free to invite me again in the future. I would love to join and uh, continue. All right, you got yourself a deal. Um, and uh, yeah, you can keep us posted of uh, any chess-related research in particular. And obviously, if you ever need subjects, uh, drop me a line and I'll uh, pump it out to the listeners. Yes, having mentioned this, I'm a part of I'm part of a chessable science team on top of all my other applications. Um, and we actually want to conduct a small research project funded by chessable science team. Um, and if they want to participate, they're actually searching for volunteers right now. So if they want to participate, Please feel free to connect me or maybe I can send you that link that you can maybe put in your show description that uh, because we are searching for people that would like to participate in that study. I can't give further details because of research, but I will allow people to, to join and be part of that project. Great. I'm glad you mentioned because uh, Carol Van Delft and Alexi Root had both emailed me about this and I almost forgot as well. So so uh, I, I appreciate it. All right. Well, John, it's been fantastic to chat and we will definitely do it again sometime. So uh, thanks. Uh, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much, Ben. And see you soon. 
Sports Social Podcast Network.